but he went to him when he was lying half dead and therefore helpless, and he poured the oil and wine into his wounds, while the poor wretch could not move an inch, nor stir his hand or foot. He bound up his wounds, and then set him on his own beast, and took him to the inn. There is tender mercy, and in this fashion Jesus deals with us. He does everything for us from the very beginning. He is Alpha, even as he must be Omega. Does not this show the tender mercy of our God, that he does come to us in the darkness and under the grim shadow of death, and there and then reveals his love to us? 4. Both time and strength fail me, so now I must finish with a fourth reflection from the text. Our God shows his tender mercy in that he visits us with such wonderful and joyful results to give light to them that sit in darkness, to guide our feet into the way of peace. One sketch must suffice. Help me as I make an outline. Imagine a caravan in the desert which has long lost its way and is famishing. The sun has long gone down and the darkness has caused everyone's heart to droop. All around them is a waste of sand and an Egyptian darkness. There they must remain and die unless they can find the track. They feel themselves to be in a fearful case, for hungry and thirsty their soul fainteth in them. They cannot even sleep for fear. Heavier and heavier the night comes down, and the damps are on the tents, chilling the souls of the travelers. What is to be done? How they watch. Alas, no star comforts them. At last the watchmen cry, The morning cometh. It breaks over the sea of sand, and what is better, it reveals a heap which had been set up as a waymark, and the travelers have found the track. The dayspring has saved them from swift destruction by discovering the way of peace. Our point is this, that when the Lord Jesus Christ visits us, he actually brings light to our darkness, really leads into the way, and makes that way a way of peace to us. Put all together and remember what the Lord has done for you. You did not know the way once, and all the preaching in the world would not have made you know it if Jesus had not by his Spirit visited you as the day spring. When you did know the way, you could not reach it of yourself. You saw it as from a distance, and could not enter upon it. But when Jesus came near, he actually guided your feet into that way. He put your feet upon a rock and established your goings. That way, good as it was, would have been to you a way of doubt and fear and hesitation if the Lord had not so sweetly shone upon you that your road became a way of perfect peace. Peace in our text means prosperity, plenty, rest, joy. I ask you, friends, whether you have not found it so. Since the Lord has visited you, have you not gone forth with joy and have been led forth with peace? Well now, the conclusion of all this is a practical matter. If the tender mercy of God has visited us and done so much for us, then I can tell, 
or than you can hear, let us ourselves exhibit tender mercy in our dealings with our fellow men. It is a wretched business for a man to call himself a Christian and have a soul which never peeps out from between his own ribs. It is horrible to be living to be saved, living to get to heaven, living to enjoy religion, and yet never to live to bless others and ease the misery of a moaning world. Do you not know that it is all nonsense to regard religion as a selfish spiritual trade by which we save our own souls? It is useless to hope for peace till you know how to love. Whence come wars and fightings but from a want of love? Unless your religion tears you away from yourself and makes you live for something nobler than your own spiritual good, you have not passed out of the darkness into the light of God. Only the way of unselfishness is the way of peace. I ask you therefore today to think very tenderly of all poor people. These are hard times. Let those who have more than they actually want be ready always to relieve distress, which is very urgent just now. The call this morning is for liberal help to our hospitals. These are called in France houses of God. Truly they are godlike in their design. There is not a man here but may be in the hospital tomorrow. Do you reply that you are a wealthy man? Yet you may be run over in the street or fall in a fit and the hospital's door is open to you. It is not merely for the beggar but for the noble that this is a refuge. Many a time men of immense wealth have had to be carried to the hospital from injury inflicted by fire or water, accident or sudden sickness. I appeal to your selfishness and to your honor. Pay your proportion towards a common protection. But I appeal to you on higher grounds. I forget just now how many thousands of cases of accident have gone into the hospital during the past year, but it is very surprising. They never ask who they are or where they come from, but receive all the wounded. Every great accident involves a huge expense upon the hospital which is near the spot. This is not sufficiently thought of, or there would be special contributions on each sad occasion. Few consider how these noble institutions are supported. Oh, the rich people give to them. Alas, the rich people often forget them. Oh, but these general collections will do the work. No such thing. It is such a pitiful contribution which usually makes a collection that the hospitals are little aided thereby. These institutions are left to run into debt or spend their capital or keep their beds empty. I could not too strongly put the case of hospitals just now. I have half wished that the government would undertake them, only I am not sure that they would be so well conducted in that case as when they are left to private management by hearts that feel for men. Something must be done. We must give a great deal more. The collections ought to be at least twice as much in all our churches and chapels as they have ever been. If you were present when a man was run over and you heard his bone break, 
you would put your hand into your pocket or do anything else in your power to help him. I wish I could make you feel in the presence of such a calamity for a minute so as to touch your hearts and your hands. Diseases are always abroad and driving thousands to seek hospital help. I would like to take you down a ward and cause you to listen to the stories told from half a dozen beds. What sickness? What poverty caused by sickness? What pains poor bodies are capable of enduring? Oh, come, let us help them. Let us give to the support of those who nurse them and for the help of those who exercise their best skill for the relief. Who can withhold? By the tender mercy of our God, I charge you to give freely to this excellent cause. As the box goes round, remember that this is not the time for three penny pieces. You who are wealthy must write checks or give notes and you may send them to our treasurer if you prefer it. All must be generous for the sake of that tender mercy which is the dayspring of our hope and life. Chapter 3, page 24 Accepted of the Great Father He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, verse 6 A few Sabbath mornings ago I spoke to you upon those memorable words of the Great Father, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We now go a step further and see how the love of God to his beloved Son overflows and runs like a river of life to all those who are in Christ Jesus. To him he saith, This is my beloved Son, and then he turns to all who are in union with him and says, These also are my beloved for his sake. As believers, we are assured by the text that we are accepted in the Beloved to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Why is that peculiar title here used? It might have been said we are accepted in Christ or accepted in the Mediator. There must be some motive for giving him the special name in this place. The motive is declared to be that we may praise the glory of divine grace. God did not want for a beloved when he made us his beloved. His heart was not pining for an object. His affections were not lone and desolate. His only begotten Son was his delight, and there was room enough in him for all the Father's love. It was we that needed to be loved, and so the beloved is mentioned that we may remember the unselfishness of divine grace. He makes us his beloved, but he had a beloved before. We are also reminded that we are accepted in the beloved to let us know that God has not shifted his love. His first beloved is his beloved still. We have not supplanted his dear son, nor even diverted a beam of love from him. The Lord has called us beloved who were not so, and made us a people who were not a people. But he has not withdrawn a grain of love from Jesus, whom he still calls mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. All the infinite love of God still flows to Jesus, and then to us in him. It pleased the Father that to him a fullness of love should be given, that out of it we might each one receive. 
God's love to us is his love to his son flowing in a hundred channels for his sake he makes the wedding feast and we are the happy guests who sit at the table not for our sakes is this done but for Jesus' sake that so it might be all of grace his perpetual acceptance with God is our acceptance that nothing legal nothing whereof we might boast might be mingled with the work of sovereign grace we are accepted in the beloved do you not love that sweet title is it not the highest quality of the acceptance that it comes through such an one he is beloved in the highest conceivable degree by the father and in this you imitate the great God for to you also the Lord Jesus is altogether lovely he is your beloved as well as God's beloved and this is one proof that you are accepted for all who truly love the Son are approved by the Father thus saith the scripture because he hath set his love upon me therefore will I deliver him I will set him on high because he hath known my name is Christ your beloved then as he is the Father's beloved you and the Father have evidently come to a sweet agreement you have come to look at things from the same standpoint as the glorious Jehovah the Lord and you evidently have a mutual interest in one common person the incarnate God your recognition of Christ as your beloved is thus a sure proof that you are accepted in the beloved see you not this is it because he is the Father's beloved that the Father loves you in him and because he is your beloved therefore you have an evidence within yourself that you have come to an agreement with the Father and so to an acceptance by him I delight in being accepted all the more because therein I am still further linked with him who joins God and man in one grand affection God's love of his dear son covers all believers as a canopy covers all who come beneath it as a hen covereth her chickens with her wings so God's love to Christ covers all the children of promise as the sun shining forth from the gates of the morning gilds all the earth with golden splendor so this great love of God to the well beloved streaming forth to him enlightens all who are in him God is so boundlessly pleased with Jesus that in him he is altogether well pleased with us oh the joy of this blending of our interests with those of the well beloved I scarcely know whether I am born even by a single word of my precious text let this stand for our preface and now let us come close to our subject upon which I do not desire so much to descant myself as to lead you individually to meditate and personally to feed I would much rather put the text into your mouths as a sweet fruit from the garden of the Lord most mellow and ripe than be judged myself to handle it well I seek not to exhibit my own skill in words but I long that you may be refreshed with the marrow and fatness of the choice word I desire that you may this morning experimentally enjoy the precious drop of honey from the rock 
Jesus Christ, which is contained in the four words accepted in the Beloved. Oh, that the Holy Spirit may make you enter into the treasures which they contain. 1. I will begin by treating the text by way of contrast. Brethren and sisters, the grace of God hath made us to be this day accepted in the Beloved, but it was not always so. As many of us as have through grace believed in Christ are now to a certainty at this very moment accepted in the Beloved. But in times past it was very different. It is not a matter of question, nor of imagination, nor of sentiment, but a matter of fact, declared by the Holy Ghost Himself, that the Lord hath made us accepted in the Beloved. But it was far otherwise a little while ago. What a contrast is our present condition of acceptance to our position under the law through Adam's fall. By actual sin we made ourselves to be the very reverse of accepted, for we were utterly refused. It might have been said of us, Reprobate silver shall men call them, because God hath rejected them. Our way was contrary to God's way. Our thoughts were not his thoughts. Our hearts were not according to his heart. Oh, if he had dealt with us then after our sins, what must have become of us? At that time we were condemned, condemned already because we had not believed on the Son of God. He could take no complacency in us. His pure and holy eyes could not look upon us. We were so full of everything that provoked him to jealousy. But now we are, oh let me pronounce it like music, accepted in the Beloved. The criminal is now a child. The enemy is now a friend. The condemned one is now justified. Mark, it is not said that we are acceptable, though that were a very great thing but we are actually accepted. It has become not a thing possible that God might accept us, but He has accepted us in Christ. Lay this to your soul, and may it fill you with delight. The Lord has chosen you. He has received you to Himself, and set His love upon you, and His delight is in you now. What a contrast from what you were a season ago in your own consciousness, in your own judgment, Refresh your memories a little. If you passed through the same state of mind as I did, you loathed your very selves in the sight of God, and you felt that God must abhor you, for you abhorred yourselves. You saw sin to be exceeding sinful, and that sinful thing was permeating your entire being, saturating your thoughts, putrefying your aims, making you to be corrupt, inoffensive, in the sight of the Most High. I know I felt that if the Lord swept me away with the broom of destruction and cast me into the lowest hell, I well deserved it. But now that condemnation is no more to be dreaded. We receive not the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. Lift up your eyes out of the thick darkness and behold the light. You, who in your own judgment were cast away forever, you who thought that the Lord would never be favorable to you, nor blot your sins, are this day accepted, accepted in the Beloved.
No contrast could be more sharp and clear, and no reflections could be more joyful than this contrast suggests to the heart. Think again of the contrast between what you are now and what you would have been had not grace stepped in. Left out of Christ, as we then were, we might at this time have been going from sin to sin, reveling and rioting in it, as so many do. We might at this moment have been sinning with a high hand, finding even in the Sabbath day a special opportunity for double transgression. In our daring rebellion, we might have been crying, the bread of the day, the bread of the deed, and so might have shown how completely we had thrown off the yoke of allegiance to the great king. Yes, by this time we might have been dead as the result of our own sins. The measure of our iniquity might have been full, and we might have been in hell. Be startled, my soul, at this thought, that nothing but infinite long-suffering has kept thee out of the pit that is bottomless, where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. But, brothers, we are not in hell, and what is more, we never shall be, for those iron gates can never close upon a soul that is accepted in the Beloved, and that is our condition now. We have fled for refuge to the hope set before us, and now no more need we be in terror of the great white throne and the righteous judge in the stern sentence, Depart ye cursed. Clinging to the cross and beholding ourselves covered with the righteousness of Christ, we know that we are saved, and what is far more, we are accepted. This blessed fact is true of those who might have been among the damned. Our laments might have been going up today amidst the wailings of the wretched who are eternally cast away from hope, and now, instead thereof, we lift a joyful song of praise unto our God, and bless and magnify His name in whom we are accepted this day. O my soul, sing thou thine own song to thy beloved. Just as thou art, how wondrous fair, Lord Jesus, all thy members are. Our life divine in them is given, a long inheritance in heaven. Just as I was, I came to thee, in hair of wrath and misery. Just as thou art before the throne, I stand in righteousness, thine own. Just as thou art, nor doubt nor fear can with thy spotlessness appear. O timeless love, as thee I'm seen, the righteousness of God in him. One more point I cannot quite pass over, and that is the contrast between what we are and all we ever could have been in the most favorable circumstances apart from the Beloved. If it had been possible for us out of Christ to have had desires after righteousness, yet those desires would all have run in a wrong direction. We should have had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, and so, going about to establish our own righteousness, we should not have submitted ourselves to the righteousness of God. We should have been weaving a righteousness of our own with heavy labor, which would have proved no better when completed than a cobweb that could never conceal our nakedness. 
At this moment the prayers we offered would never have been received at the throne. The praises we presented would have been all ill savor unto God. All that we could have aimed to accomplish in the matter of good works, had we striven to our utmost, would have been done in willfulness and pride, and so must necessarily have fallen short of acceptance. We should have heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me, for out of Christ our righteousness is as unacceptable as our unrighteousness, and all our attempts to merit acceptance increase our unworthiness. O strive as we will, ye self-righteous, labor as ye may after a righteousness of your own, what can come of it but confusion? Whence is it that the people labor as in the very fire? This shall they have at the Lord's hands. They shall lie down in sorrow. The bread is shorter than that a man may stretch himself on it, and the covering is narrower than that a man may wrap himself in it. Woe is unto the man who is out of Christ, wherever he may be. In any case, the wrath of God abideth on him. But we are not out of Christ. We are not striving in vain. We are not spending our strength for naught. For here is the blessed contrast. We are accepted in the Beloved. A touch of the black pencil brings out the bright lights, and therefore I have laid on these shades. Such were some of you, but now ye are washed. Now ye are sanctified. Now you are justified. Now ye are accepted in the Beloved. All glory be unto the grace by which we have received this heavenly benefit. 2. Secondly, we will say a little by way of explanation that the text may sink yet deeper into your hearts and afford you richer enjoyment. Recollect, brethren, that once we were pitied of God as poor, lost, self-destroyed creatures that was in a degree hopeful. We were chosen of God while in that pitiable condition, and although forlorn, wretched, and ruined, yet were we marked by his electing love. This was still more encouraging. Then came a time of dealing with us, and we were pardoned, our transgressions were put away, and we were renewed in the spirit of our minds by the Holy Ghost and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us, and at length burst forth the light of this word, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Much went before this, but oh, what a morning without clouds rose upon us when we knew our acceptance and were assured thereof. Acceptance was the watchword, and had troops of angels met us, we should have rejoiced that we were as blessed as they. Understand that this acceptance comes to us entirely as a work of God. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. We never made ourselves acceptable, nor could we have done so. But He that made us first in creation hath now made new us by His grace, and so hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That this was an act of pure grace, there can be no doubt. For the verse runs thus, 
wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. This is in his grace. There was no reason in ourselves why we should have been put into Christ and so accepted. The reason lay in the heart of the Eternal Father himself. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and by this will we were saved. To the great first cause we must ever trace the motive for our acceptance. Grace reigns supreme. It is a gracious acceptance of those who but for grace have been rejected. Do notice this and dwell upon the truth, glorifying God therein. Again, our acceptance is in the Beloved. It is only as we are in Christ that we are accepted. Let no man steal out of Christ and then say, God has accepted me. Nothing of the kind. If the Lord views you apart from Christ, whoever you may be, you are a thing to be consumed and not to be accepted. In the Beloved, that is, as it were, within the gates of the city of refuge, you must abide within the arms of the well-beloved, living in the very heart of Christ, and then you shall know yourself to be accepted in the Beloved. For Christ's sake, and because you are a part of Him, you shall be approved of the Father. He has taken you into covenant union, so that you can say with the favored apostle, Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore the Father accepts you because He cannot disassociate you from His Son, nor His Son from you, nor think of Christ without you, nor of you without Christ. Hence it is you are accepted in the Beloved. That explains the words. The following remarks may make the sense somewhat more transparent. No man, my brethren, can be accepted of God while he is guilty of sin, so that our acceptance in the Beloved involves the fact that our sin at this moment is forever put away. Covered is our unrighteousness, and therefore from condemnation we are free, and we are accepted. Realize this truth. It does not require any oratory to set it forth. It needs only that your faith should fully apprehend it. Realize that you are forgiven today. With your eye upon the wounds of Christ, say unto your soul by the Spirit, I am without spot or wrinkle in the sight of God, for Christ hath washed me whiter than the driven snow. He has said of his people, Ye are clean every whit. Rejoice in this. You could not be accepted if he had not made you clean, for the filthy are not accepted of the Lord. Neither could God accept a man devoid of righteousness. A mere colorless person whose sin was forgiven, but who had no righteousness, could not be acceptable with him. I cannot suppose the existence of such a being, but if there were such, he would be like one who is neither cold nor hot and must be spewed out of God's mouth. He that is accepted with God must be positively righteous. Very well, then, they that believe in Christ are righteous in the sight of God. Mark you, they are not righteous with a sham righteousness, an imaginary, fictitious righteousness. No, the righteousness which is of faith is 
the most real righteousness under heaven. The righteousness of works may be questioned, but the righteousness of faith cannot be, for it is the righteousness of God himself. Now drink that in. Do not let me hold it up and show you what a draught it is, but drink it up for yourselves. You are righteous in Christ, or else you could not be accepted. Sin is gone, and righteousness is positively yours. Now to come back again. If we be indeed accepted in the Beloved, does it not show how close, how real our union with the Beloved must be? Do we even share in Christ's acceptance with God? Then we are one with Him in everything. Here is a father who has no particular interest in such and such a woman, but his son takes to himself that woman to be his wife. And now the loving father says, That woman is my daughter, and so she is received into his love for his son's sake. He says to her, You are my dear son's wife, therefore you are my daughter, and dear to me, and welcome to my house at any time. Thus it is with the great God. He says to us, whom Christ has espoused unto himself, that we may be his bride in blessed conjugal union forever and ever. Come to my heart, my children, for he is my son, and I love you for his sake. I accepted you in him. Is not that a wonderful union, closer than the marriage bond which causes us to share in Christ's righteousness, so that the holy God can say to us who are sinful by nature, you are accepted to me because of your connection with my son. If a woman of base character were married to the best of men, it would not make her acceptable. A father would scarcely know what to do with such a daughter-in-law. We should try to carry out our relationship as far as we could with all kindness, but we could hardly say that such a person brought into our family by marriage would be acceptable to us. But oh, the Lord sees his people so wrapped up in Christ that he must accept them in him. If I accept a man, I cannot quarrel with his little finger. If I accept a man, I accept his whole body. And so, since the Father accepts Christ, he accepts every member of his mystical body. If I am one with Christ, though I be but as I were only the sole of his foot, and exposed oftentimes to the mire of the streets, yet because of his glorious head is accepted, the meanest member joined in living union to that head is accepted too. Is not this glorious? Can you get a firm hold of it? Unless you intelligently grasp its full significance, you will not hardly enjoy this unspeakable privilege. But if your faith receives and welcomes it, you will not need any further explanation. You are accepted in the Beloved, and it is clear that there is a blessed union between you and Christ. The acceptance which the Father gives to Christ, he gives to you. Now, see if you can measure it. How acceptable is Christ to God? Must it not be an infinite acceptance? For it is an infinite being, infinitely accepting, an infinitely holy and well-pleasing one, and then accepting us who are in him with the self-same acceptance. Oh, how acceptable is every believer to the Eternal Father in Christ Jesus. 3. Can we get a step further? 
Will the Holy Spirit help us while I say a few words by way of enlargement? If we are accepted in the Beloved, then first our persons are accepted. We ourselves are well-pleasing to Him. God looks upon us now with pleasure. Once He said of men that it repented Him that He had made us. He takes delight in us. Look at your own children. Sometimes they grieve you, but still you are pleased with them. It is a pleasure to have them near you, and if they are long out of your sight, you grow anxious about them. They are coming home for their holidays soon. They are glad to return home, and I am sure their mothers are glad at the thought of seeing them again. Our Father is as truly pleased with us. Our very persons are accepted of God. He delights in us individually. He thinks of us with joy, and when we are near to Him, it gives pleasure to His great heart. Being ourselves accepted, the right of access to Him is given us. When a person is accepted with God, he may come to God when he chooses. He is one of those sheep who may go in and out and find pasture. He is one of those couriers who may come even to the royal throne and meet with no rebuff. No chamber of our great Father's house is closed against us. No blessing of the covenant is withheld from us. No sweet smile of the Father's face is refused us. He that accepted us gives us access into all blessings. See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also. You remember the story of King Asherius and his poor trembling spouse Esther, how she ventured in at peril of her life. For if the royal lord and master did not stretch out the golden scepter, then the guards that stood about the throne would cut her down, the queen royal though she was, for daring to come unbidden into the despot's presence. But today, when you and I come to God, we have no fear of that kind, because we are accepted first. He hath already stretched out to us the golden scepter, and he bids us come boldly. All is well between us and him. We have access with boldness into this grace wherein we stand. In being accepted ourselves, our prayers are also accepted. Children of God, can you sincerely believe this? Do you not sometimes pray as if you were beggars in the street, pleading with unwilling persons to give you a gratuity of coppers? I believe many children of God do so. But when we know we are accepted in the Beloved, we speak to God with a sweet confidence, expecting Him to answer us. To us it is no surprise that our Heavenly Father should hear our prayers. He does it so often and so generously that we expect Him to do so always. It is a way of His to hear the prayers of the well-beloved. When unaccepted men pray, they pray unaccepted prayers. But when accepted men pray with God, he says, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I succored thee. When God delights in men, he gives them the desires of their hearts. Oh, the splendor of that man's position who is accepted in the Beloved. To him the Lord seems to say, Ask what thou wilt, and it shall be given to thee, not even to the half, of my kingdom but my kingdom itself shall be given thee thou shalt sit with me upon my throne 
Oh, the blessedness of being accepted in the Beloved, because the acceptance makes our prayers to be as sweet incense before the Lord. It follows then, as a pleasant sequence, that our gifts are accepted, for those who are accepted with God find a great delight in giving of their substance to the glory of His name. I know that when money is wanted for the church of God, and one of the brethren goes round to collect the offerings, the subjects of the kingdom are wont to say, Here comes the tax gatherer again. Yes, that is what the subjects say. Oh, but when the children are about, they cry, Here is another opportunity for presenting an offering to our Father, a welcome occasion of proving that our love to Him is pure, without greed or grudging. They clap their hands to think that they may come before the Lord with their sacrifices. Their only question is, will he accept it? Oh, what would I not give if I did but know that he would accept it? Many a poor woman will take her two mites and not more stealthily than joyfully cast them into the treasury as she says, Will he really accept them when dropped into the offering box? Will he even know about them? And some of God's children get schemes into their heads of doing great things for God, but then say, May I not, after all, be working for myself? May it not be that pride and vainglory so leaven my labors that the odor of a sweet smell like to that sacrifice acceptable which the Philistines presented will be all a wanting? Nay, my friends, my helpers, in every good work, you need not ask that question if he has accepted you, for the accepted man brings an offering accepted. It is wonderful how God sees good things in his people where we cannot see them. He saw in Abijah some good thing towards the Lord God of Israel when perhaps no one else saw it. Mistress Sarah once made a rather naughty speech, yet there was one good word in it. I doubt very much if any one of us would have been quick enough to discern it. Yet the Holy Spirit picked out that one word and put it into the New Testament to her praise. She spoke unbelievingly as to her bearing a child at her advanced age, though the promise was pronounced that she would bring forth a son. She said, Shall it be, I being old, my Lord being old also? This was a bad speech, but we are somewhat startled to read in the New Testament, as Sarah also obeyed her husband, calling him Lord. If God can find a speck of good in us, he will. Then let us try what we can do for him. Here is a great lump of quartz, but if the Lord can see a grain of gold, he will save the quartz for the sake of it. He says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.org.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.